Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. It's history is sexy time again for the first time in a week. First time in such a long time because we took a break because you needed it. <laughs> I did. I had a book to write and yeah. then I wrote loads of it and now I don't have very much of it left to write, which was good. That's excellent news because I really personally need to read it. So um, I'm glad that it exists more you so than it did. When you read it, because there have been some evenings like when I have been sitting, because I tend to write at night, partly because I have a full-time job and partly because I like it better, mm-hmm. where I have been sitting, writing about murders. There's <laughs> 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 been some long, dark nights of the soul. <laughs> um, right, I really tried to put off writing about infanticide for a long time and eventually... Mm-hmm. Had to do it and was just like, oh, there's just no real way. To, there's no way to make a fantasy funny. <laughs> no, there really isn't. It's the least funny of all of the. I'd dicks, say, I think. Yeah, if I was to rank them, least amusing. Yeah. It's just real hard to do jokes about. It. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. So, yeah, we had some long, dark evenings of the soul. Um, <laughs> the rest of it's great, though. Oh, the rest of it's got some real good jokes. <laughs> Other murders are funny. All the other murders are at least vaguely amusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot, all the other murders have like a bad murderer usually that you can take the piss out of. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if, like the sadness of a dead child, really just sucks the sucks the joy out of taking piss out of murderers. You don't mean you still yeah, still no, dead. That's yeah. really. I think my favorite thing to swing wildly in the in a funny murder direction away from children. <laughs> I think yeah. my favorite thing about murders in the olden times is how improbable they will seem and like murder plots where they're like this was what was going to happen and obviously there you've got a corkers in your book on Aquapina but also I was just listening to an episode of Rex Factor in which someone attempted to assassinate the king by poisoning a saddle yeah so that he'd sit on it and yeah and it would kill him and I really want to know what with <laughs> how is it supposed to penetrate him yeah his not only his skin but his like clothing Trousers. maybe yeah. his chainmail. like that just seems very very unlikely there's a really good I'm not going to tell you who it is so that it's still a surprise when you get to it in the episode in the Scottish series there's a king who gets killed because a woman sets up a trick statue in her house <laughs> And when you pick up, like, it's a man holding an apple and when, and she goes, oh, look at my amazing statue, you can, like, pick the apple up that the man is holding. And the king picks up the apple and that triggers a load of crossbows to go off and they all fire at <laughs> Do you know what? I feel really let down by, like, Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and everyone who's ever written fictional murders because they're not as good as real attempts in history. It's true. Um, I mean, there was a fair whack of poisoning in history, mm-hmm. but sure. uh, but they really don't write about all of the hilarious ones. <laughs> so I'm going to fill that gap. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, since it's been such a long time, we probably should remind we people should reintroduce and ourselves yeah. what we do and who we are. Yeah. So I am Dr. Emma Southern. I'm a historian with a cold, <laughs> so I apologize for how I sound. I am here with Janina Matthewson, who is highly acclaimed writer and doesn't have a cold. I don't. Um, I'm very, very healthy. And together we answer people's questions about history and tell them how it's sexy. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically it. All the fun things of history. You can't be bothered researching yourself. Yeah. We, we are will here research for. them for you. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, sometimes before I start, I have to do a correction because I don't, I don't like to be wrong and I won't. But somebody from Germany who does not have their real name on Twitter and they heard go Stratum Cornium told us that. So we did airships many weeks ago and they, we were talking about the tropical island hangar. Like mm-hmm. that's the tropical park inside an air. Uh, I was very, very hangar. excited about it. Yeah, it turns out it's not from the 20s, it's from the 90s, which there was an attempt to make airships great again. That did not go very well and (laughs) ended up being this instead. So it's not from the 20s, but it's still massive. Uh, (laughs) So that is my, that's my correction. I mean, it's still pretty good. It's still pretty good. Turning turning any kind of hangar into a tropical resort in Europe is pretty good. It kind of makes it sadder that they tried to revive them that badly in the 90s. <laughs> in the 90s, yeah. And everyone was like, no, we'll just catch planes. Oliver found a thing from The Sun from like two years ago, from 2017, of people being like, airships are the, the luxury way to travel for the future. So I say that every two years. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> do you know, I can see airships yeah, being trying like... trying to make airships happen. Like if they do... There's not going to be an airship renaissance. I'm sorry, everyone. But if there was, I can see it being rather than a transport option, like a hotel thing. Yeah. Like stay yeah. in this hotel that floats above the, a beautiful place. That would be fine. Yeah. And, unless it fell over and engulfed you in a ball of flame. But that would, be, that that would make it anything. less good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So that's our correction. This week, we're on a completely different thing. A thing that you would think was easier to make sexy than airships. I mean, it does have more sex. It does. But as with all things, when we're talking about actual sex um, in the past, <laughs> it turns out that it's not very sexy and actually quite depressing. Uh, <laughs> And the question comes from Natasha L. Mercer, who is, I believe, a teacher of ancient history in uh, Australia. She says, at school, I learned it was better to be a hetaira than a wife. Is this true? Was it really better to be a prostitute than a wife in ancient Athens? And this is kind of something that I learned as well when I was in school doing A-level ancient history, that there were these women who were, they're called hetairai in Greek, which is often usually translated as courtesan. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's different from I think is porn eye is like yeah women on the street like street walkers exactly so you have like porn eye who are like your yeah street walkers or brothel workers and then you have hetairai who are supposed to be like highly educated free courtesans who are sex workers who choose sex work and are hilarious and make men fall in love with them and are mm-hmm. always doing witty bon mots and then also loads of like hilarious stories about them swindling men out of their favorite statue because the men are so in love with them that they don't know what to do with themselves so very much the greek equivalent of the women in my favorite movie dangerous beauty which is a cool <laughs> it's about exact essentially the same situation but in venice where she's a she becomes a courtesan because that allows her to have an education whereas if she exactly. was just going to be a wife then she wouldn't you wouldn't be allowed to go in the library and that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's very much the like the standard view of Athenian women is that Athenian free women were not allowed to go outside and were not allowed to even look at a man who wasn't their husband and it was ideal if they didn't even look at their male children and if their even man in the household saw them, then their eyes would fall out and that woman would be 
like <laughs> cast asunder. If anyone outside of the house even knew her name, then that meant that she was a slut and a whore and could should be cast to the wolves. And that they were women were kept sex segregated in dungeons and were never allowed to see the sun and withered away. Whereas Hitairai could be educated and sexy and wear jewels and flash their nips at people mm-hmm. and like got go to, go to the theatre and run yeah, around they, and have parties. Got to go to the theatre and go to dinner parties and wear nice dresses and laugh and drink wine. So they got to have these kind of delightful free lives while all of the noble and free women of Athens who were married were just like covered in female children and were peeping from their sad dungeon, which is obviously... I think I did read that it was more more like if a household was segregated by gender, it was more likely that women were upstairs because that was further away from further away the from outside. the door. <laughs> <laughs> it was the less public yes. part of the house. So at least they had better they had light a view. and a better view. <laughs> <laughs> they could gaze sadly out of their upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Like out of the attic. <laughs> yeah. At what they could be, but not be seen because were anyone to cast an eye on them, then their entire family would be destroyed. Yeah. And that is like this idea of of what it was like to be an Athenian woman. And yeah. a lot of that comes from the fact that Athenian men write really horrible things about women a lot. <laughs> you amaze me. I know. And we've we've talked about Aristotle before and his quite strong in the menstruation episode we talked about it about his quite strong belief that women were basically a deformed man (laughs) and that they were by nature monsters who were disgusting and didn't even have enough teeth and should be kept under the heel of a man basically because they couldn't be trusted i think i can't remember who said this i think i saw somewhere that also men didn't really even give women that much respect for the fact that they bore children because they believed that the entire personhood came from the seed and that yes. women were essentially just the field. Um, flower pot theory, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they were just the flower pot and um, at best their menses might contribute something. Yeah. But they weren't 100% convinced on that. But basically, yeah, like... I can never remember the name of the scientist, but there's a scientist from the 19th, maybe 18th century, who was the first person to look at semen through a microscope and really thought that he was going to see tiny little men in the semen. <laughs> Just swimming around. Yeah. Um, and that's basically what the Greeks kind of thought about yeah. women. And like there's a lot of Athenian philosophy is like, well, men are great and women are shit and Athenians are great and everyone who's not an Athenian is shit. <laughs> and being kind of pale skinned is great and being dark skinned is shit and kind of the setting up dichotomies, basically, of which male, female is one of them. Yeah. Which causes a real problem. I think in it also when you're looking at what women's lives are like in the ancient world. Sources are awful. I think I read um, Susan B. Pomeroy's book, Goddesses, yes. Whores, and something else, <laughs> where she talks about how historians preceding her, a lot of their theories about women's lives were based on fiction, based literally on yeah. ancient Greek plays. 
Yes, that theater. and court cases yeah. were all the records they have of of anything to do with women. So there was the main argument was whether you should take more more evidence from dramas or comedies about what real yeah. women's lives were like. Which, if you have read any fiction in which a man describes how a woman <laughs> is, how she is feeling, and what she does, you know that that is not a good source. She boobed boobly down the road. (laughs) She boobed boobly down the road as her vagina existed. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Um, There was a kind of classic joke is that there was an old book on the law of Athens put women under disabilities. (laughs) So like in the index, you look the only place that you can find women is like disabilities, women. (laughs) Um, yeah, and there is this real problem with like 19th and early 20th century scholars who barely thought that women existed in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. Like they just don't really think that women are real, who spend all of their time then taking women out of tragedy. So like Electra and, you know, and Antigone and Medea and mm-hmm. all of these women and Clytophanestra and claiming that they somehow represent a reality. When yeah. one, that they're all royal women mm-hmm. and therefore represent nothing to do with non-royal <laughs> women. Um, and two are mythical in yes. fiction. Yeah. And all two are men written by men. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really, you're just like, I don't know like why you would, I mean, fine, I guess you can look at it for ideas of women, but you can't really be looking at it for how women actually were. And yet they like to. Yeah, they do. And that is a real problem. And the other problem, so Sarah Pomeroy, um, it's Goddesses, Whores, Wives and Slaves, Women in Classical Antiquity. I told you it was something else. (laughs) The, like the book on ancient women for a really long time. And she really like made a, a statement with that book. And she was one of the first people to really kind of kick the door down and say, have we ever thought about looking at, real women guys (laughs) everyone was like whoa what the fuck and she she made the point when talking about women i put this quote in because i just thought like it it, this is the it's answer to the question being it's so much more complicated than that and she puts it really well because she says the issue of status is in itself misleading because the broad range of scholarly opinion is based on treating women as an undifferentiated mass yeah um which is true Women are not all the same. Which is a surprise to a lot of men, especially (laughs) when ancient history for a very long time belonged to the upper classes Mm -hmm. and belonged to white rich dudes who went to Eton and then then went to Oxbridge um, and maybe two of them were in Edinburgh and therefore just saw themselves in the sources and were like, well, I have a sexist marriage with a wife I don't like, so I assume that's what I'm reading here. (laughs) Um, And yet I have my, you know, students that I hit on all the time and they go outdoors. So whores, all of them. Yeah. And they are helped along, to be fair, by a lot of the the sources. Like you said, the legal courses, like the law cases, which are primarily Demosthenes and Lysias, are... They are genuinely useful, but they are also playing on stereotypes and creating and kind of using those stereotypes in the same way that court cases do now. Like when you've got a a case, prosecution and the defence will both play on stereotypes in order to manipulate the jury. Yeah. So like... And if you were to look at cases 300 years from now, if you were to look at a case of 
I don't know, a young black man who was arrested for marijuana possession. And that was your only example of what life was like for young black men. Yeah. That's a massive problem (laughs) to your scholarship. If you're only, like, how do we treat women in 21st century Britain? Like, your only source for that was, for example defense speech for a rape case where they're going on about well she was wearing a skirt so she deserved it well she was wearing a thong so she deserved it then you're gonna get like a one particular view of of how women are portrayed like oh it's not his fault that she was going out with her ankles out and that is you know what we are getting from a lot of these there's all these classic quotes that come up One of them is one from Lysias where it says, he entered the women's quarters where my sisters and nieces, whose lives are so well ordered that they are ashamed to be seen even by their family. And then there's another one from Thucydides, which he puts in the mouth of Pericles, when he says that a woman's reputation is highest when men say little about her, whether it be good or evil. So I like that that one a lot. Yeah, just when nobody knows who you are. And yeah. then the final one is like the classic one from Demosthenes, where he says, We have Hetairai for pleasure and Palakai for the daily services of our body, but wives for the production of legitimate offspring. Which is like this very clear split between Hetairai as your mistress, basically, kind of a mm-hmm. courtesan who you enjoy being with, and Palakai are sex slaves, your slaves that you fuck. And then wives are people who look after your household and you have reluctant sex with them so that they have offspring and then you keep a close eye on them so they never see a man so you never have to worry about whether your offspring is your own. Yeah. And there are... Okay, so there are two problems with this narrative. The first is the idea of Hetairai as laughing, sparkling-teethed delights who are hilarious and sophisticated and men fall in love with them and who are freely chosen sex work Mm -hmm. and having a wonderful time. Mm -hmm. And the other problem is the kind of sad wife locked in the attic who has never seen the sun Mm -hmm. and definitely doesn't know who a man is because they are both fairly easily taken apart as as tropes that have been invented by men, basically, and that do not in any way really describe the majority of people's lives. Yeah. In particular, the concept of the hetairai is the the happy hooker, basically. Um, (laughs) So it's what she is. Like, she's the fabricated idea of... Like, free, um, independent, intelligent... Free, independent woman who just is fucking fucking you because she loves it so much and Mm. is also totally winning in this situation. And the idea that that's the only way for women to have any real agency is to be a hetairai instead of a wife. Yeah. Yeah. But when you look at like actual examples who are not in literature, so who are not in comedy, mostly they appear in (laughs) comedy a lot, obviously, because the idea of comedy is all about inverted stereotypes in the Greek world. So there's like always a slave who's much, much smarter than his master and is actually in charge. Mm -hmm. So like season one of of Blackadder, the Baldrick. Yeah, Exactly, or Jeeves and Wooster. He lets his master think that he's in charge, but actually he's doing everything. And he's like raking in all of the money. And then like the slutty lady who can't get enough and who is ruling her husband through Mm -hmm. the fact that he's so in love with her that he'll do anything that he wants is a hilarious comedy trope. (laughs) It's still today. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so that comes up all the time because, to be honest, I find Greek comedy, early Greek comedy, specifically Aristophanes, to be very funny, mostly because it's very rude. Mm-hmm. Later Greek comedy, I have no time for Menander. Sorry, Menander fans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he's not very funny. But... You know, it comes up all the time. But when you look into... So what we do have is law cases from Demosthenes where we have real women who have been called to Tyri and who are like the key high-class war courtesans of mm-hmm. the Roman... Roman? Uh, Greek, Athenian world. But when you actually look at their stories, they're actually really fucking depressing. Who um, think? <laughs> it's such a surprise, right? Yeah. So you have... Like a couple of really big ones. One is called Alke um, mm-hmm. and one is called Neera. And Neera in particular is like, there's this very long speech about her entire life and about how she is this kind of queen of Athens and a kind of way is how she is presented in it. But when you kind of nail down into her story, what you have is child sex slave where quite a lot of attention is drawn to her at the beginning where she is... She is a child, a prepubescent child who was trafficked into Greece from somewhere, who is working with her body to quote, even before she hits puberty, but is very beautiful. So she's very uh, in demand. She is taken around Greece by the woman who trafficked her because sex work is really dominated by women, by freed women particularly. She is kind of taken around Greece. She's taken to all of these places as a as a sex slave, effectively. Eventually, she's able to buy her own freedom, but only with the help of one of her clients, who then basically feels that he has bought her. So his name is Frinian. Mm-hmm. And he takes her on as his hetairai and keeps her in all of these like nice houses and jewellery. And she has, she has two slaves of her own now. She gets to hang out with all of these famous poets and actors and famous athletes and things and she gets to go to symposia and blah 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 but also he's beating the shit out of her so she leaves him and has to leave Athens altogether eventually she returns with another client called Stephanos and Frinian tries to claim her as his slave which leads to this court case So eventually it is agreed that the two men, Stephanus and Frinian, will share her and they will pay half of her costs each. And she continues her life as a sex worker. Eventually she has children who she also sells into sex. And she is presented as living this high life of, you know, they make a really big deal about all of these famous men and noble men who come forward and who are willing to pay all of this money to have sex with her. But what you have is an enslaved woman who was trafficked into sex slavery as a child and who never escapes it and then becomes procurer and sells her own children into sex. Yeah, it's not fun. It's not fun. It's a really horrible story. And the fact that people... Men in the modern era have been able to read this as a like, oh, what a delightful life story. Yeah. When it, it begins with a line about her being prepubescent and people falling all over themselves to have sex with her is fucking insane. It is. Like, I'm, you know, just made, made my language go ableist. That's how bad it is. <laughs> <laughs> and like, she is like the poster child 
literally for her tyro for like that she's famous people want to people fight over her like yeah. that's how amazing she is and that's her story and alke has a remarkably similar one in that she is a child and slave who is trafficked into greece who is sold as a sex slave in a brothel in Piraeus, which is the port of Athens. Mm-hmm. So basically she is working in a brothel which is run by a woman who is working for an Athenian citizen called Uktimon. Eventually she ages out, which means I think that she hits her 20s <laughs> uh, <laughs> and enters a relationship with a guy who she has two children with and then he abandons her because she's not allowed to legally be married so he can just fuck off and leave her. And so her kind of master, Euctemon, gives her a job managing another brothel in Keramikos, which is at the other side of Athens. And then she starts a relationship with Uktaman. But again, you're like, this is all couched in the language of starts a relationship. And you're a bit like, yeah. mm, I'm not sure that she had much say in the relationship. Yeah. He's like all in love with her and writes her into her will, into his will, and then dies. And then his kids, his like legitimate kids are furious that she is, as far as they are concerned, she is disinheriting them because she is inheriting stuff from him. Yeah. And there's like, and so this is where we get a lot of language about the hetairaya for pleasure and wives are for legitimate offspring. Mm-hmm. And we don't leave our property to hetairaya because they're disgusting. Mm-hmm. But again, like this is told quite often in older sources as like the ways in which women could improve their socioeconomic status and like mm, didn't improve much else though because even, it seems like her life it, still sucked it seems like it must be limited because wasn't athenian law so closely tied up in whether or not you were a citizen and the requirements for that were really well they changed depending on what the population was like when oh, there yeah. were wars they opened the gates a bit because they needed to replenish the population and that sort of thing. But in general, you had oh, to yeah. be granted citizenship. And if you weren't a citizen, you basically didn't have rights to anything. You, you weren't an alive person, as far as I were concerned. Yeah, yes. so... You had to... Like, there were special taxes for non-citizens. Yeah. And, like, they guarded citizenship like there was the most special privilege. Yeah. And, like, you were only allowed certain things... And a woman who had been involved in the sex industry could never be a proper citizen and could never be, like, allowed to be part of polite society. Yeah. But, yeah, they guarded it like it was the most precious of jewels and a, a, a lot. Um, I did my PhD, actually, with somebody who did um, did his PhD on metics who are, like, resident foreigners in Athens. So. Mm-hmm. You like you can't just like live there for years and then try and get citizenship. You can live there for your entire life, but if you're not a citizen, you're a metic, and that means you're a second class citizen. Cool. You are. You like you pay extra taxes, and you're always everyone's always side eyeing you, yeah. and like you're just. It's a bit like um, we have, we have a friend who lived in the Middle East for a long time who lived in Qatar, and they have like you know if you're Qatari then you are extra special. And then if you're Arab of any other kind, then you're like a bit less special. Mm -hmm. And then if you're anyone else who is, if you're white, then you're kind of, mm, and then like you have these hierarchies of foreigners, but being Qatari is the most special and you can't just become a Qatari. You have to be born Qatari. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how the Athenians were about it. They fuck you up if you try to pretend you were. (laughs) 
So basically, what I'm saying is that the idea of the hetairai as free, happy woman who's educated and delightful is yeah. imagined by men. There's a woman called Rebecca Futo Kennedy, who's the, my, my kind of historian, um, <laughs> in that her favourite thing to do is just poke at other, pe- other historians and point out where they are more than happy to go along with, more than happy to see the world through the eyes of very elite Athenian men. Mm-hmm. And I see this as Romans a lot. People are really happy to see the world through the eyes of Roman men and just totally take their worldview as being somehow neutral. And yeah, Rebecca Futo Kennedy is really good at picking out when people are doing that and being like, this isn't a neutral worldview. Yeah. And she, her argument is that the concept of a hetairai is imagined in order to separate elite sexual activity, the sexual activity of the rich and elite of society with sex workers from the non-elite activity with sex workers. So like, oh, she's not really a sex worker because at one, she loves it. And two, I love her. And three, she's actually hilarious. Yeah. And so on and so forth. the problem with all that, even if it's true, even if it's true that Hitaro were funny and clever and witty and, <laughs> and had all this repartee with their clients and filled this sort of intellectual, sexual gap that men were depriving themselves of by not educating their wives, um, even if that is true, it's like true in this, well, probably has to be taken in context, similar to how, you know, your waitress knows that if she lets you flirt <laughs> with her, you'll leave her a bigger tip. <laughs> Yeah. She's not happy about it because it sucks. Yeah, absolutely. And I work in retail, like you don't need to, like, yes, maybe I am delightful to you, but I'm also being paid to be delightful. Yes, it is part of the job. It's not a relationship. It's not spontaneous. And there is a a power dynamic at play. Yes, absolutely. Whereby these women theoretically can leave this relationship but there are going to be consequences for leaving that relationship yeah because i feel like the one thing that is common in ancient societies that were so heavily patriarchal is women are entirely dependent on men in whatever way that means if that's by marrying them or by having sex with them or whatever if they yeah if they don't have men then they don't have yeah then you are yeah I mean, the interesting, I mean, this is one of these things whereby, like, the more kind of rich and quote-unquote noble you are, the more difficult it is almost to be a woman because the more dependent you are on men because you don't have access to work. Where Yes, where if you're poor, you are necessary because everyone is necessary. Yeah, or not even that poor. Like, even if you're, there is a, you know, a, Athens had an empire and was a you know a cosmopolitan place mm. and talked to a lot of the rest of the world and there were people coming in and out and I think there is a tendency certainly there is for me to see Athens as this like little place where only about 12 people live <laughs> and they've all got effect they're all called Cleon and they're all <laughs> like inexplicably white dudes who are good at war <laughs> and but but clearly it wasn't and I tell you, actually, doing the research for this, I felt kind of bad about all the times I've been mean about the Greeks. You you are pretty mean about the Greeks a lot of the time. <laughs> well, I think the problem is, and I've, I've had this, I had a revelation yesterday, that so much of what I did when I did 
Greek history was doing Thucydides and Herodotus, who are fine, but are basically just like war, 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 politics. And I can't stand either of those things. So that gives you, but those are like the two historians and Xenophon who does war, 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 walking, walking. And so that's all the history you get, really. And then theatre, where I'm like, well, it's not, all right, why am I reading fiction? Yeah. And I'm a real dickhead, so, and I'm not a classicist, so I don't do, like, looking at fiction and nodding. <laughs> That's really horrible about classicists. <laughs> <laughs> but I am a historian. I'm like, my interest in history has always been, like, what were people, like, real, literal people doing on a day-to-day basis and, like, the nitty-gritty dirt under the fingernails parts of it. Yeah. And I just didn't get any of that at all during my A-levels, or particularly yeah. at the beginning of my undergraduate it was all war and theater occasionally a temple and all of a sudden I was reading yesterday about all these real people doing real exciting things I was reading all of these like there's these really cute things of women who have written like graffiti on bits of pot like Lycomachus seems beautiful to Ianthus um (laughs) and like you know presumably handing them over which is really cute and all of these people who are doing actual things in life and running businesses and having feelings. I was like, where were you in 1999? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's too late yeah. now. I'm, it's I'm way too late. But married to the Romans, but I take <laughs> a lot of it back. Turns out there were people in Greece. <laughs> and some of them were interesting. Yeah, one or two of yeah. them. So because it was like really getting into looking at To be fair, a lot of this stuff has been published quite recently. But looking at women who are part of the middle classes, basically, of Athens, who are the mercantile class and the banking class and who are running the marketplace and who are running their household, whereby running a household means running a business and living a life that is not clearly not just being locked in an attic Mm. and another interesting thing so I found a lot of these in a book that was published like literally three years ago and there were a couple of articles one was by Alison Glazebrook and one was by Edward Cohen about like real Athenian women and one was really picking apart the idea that any woman who was seen in public must be a hetairo. Mm-hmm. And the other was literally looking at female business women and like listing them effectively. Like, here is a woman who ran a bank. Here is a woman who was a. Se- like, this is quite boring to read, to be honest, but sure. it was quite impressive. But like, they did some things. They did a Yeah, business. like this woman sold honey. This woman sold sesame seeds. This yeah. woman sold reeds. This woman sold bread. This woman sold clothing. This woman sold garlands. This woman was a read textiles this woman was a gilder this woman was uh was a perfume merchant you're like okay i mean i got the thing but yeah but it was really like there's a lot of women who are living a life you know like in the marketplace haggling for shit i mean that's one of the things that i feel like is easily forgotten even when you look back on recent history that it is just full of people living their lives in the best way they can given their circumstances Everyone's just trying their best. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's just doing what's in front of them to do. And, like, you can't yeah. make every woman in, in, in a city just 
keep it keep to the attic. Like, no, it, it, it wouldn't. It doesn't make it, any sense. It wouldn't make any sense. It just doesn't. Life doesn't function like that. And I did read a comment. I think this was in uh, what's her name Pomeroy's book. Yeah, Sarah Pomeroy. Yes, Sarah Pomeroy's book, where the urbanization ch- changed the way that women's roles were viewed yeah. because their work became mostly hidden. Whereas in rural communities, their work is still. Like if you are a farmer, everyone in your family helps with the farm. But if you live in a house in the city and your job is a city job and you're the women are doing jobs at home, it's less visible and therefore becomes yeah. less valued. I do think that some of her points in that section are a bit dated now because she does say like, oh, a woman's job is to sit at home, have babies and weave. <laughs> and I think that's pretty much a direct quote. But like when you, that is at best a description of like Penelope. Yeah. And it's possibly a description of certain noble women who have enough of a household of slaves who can do that basically. But the ability to sit at home, have slaves and weave is uh, luxurious. And to be the ability to be indoors and not ever see anyone and never be looked at is effectively a privilege Mm. of having lots of money And also gives you the privilege of feeling like you're better than everybody else. Like, I am the most noble of all the women because I don't need to go outside. Yeah. In the same way that, like, you know, in the medieval period, it was super fashionable to be very pale because it meant that you didn't have to go outside. You could stay indoors all the time. And But that is a fashion that can only exist for the most elite of the elite. Yeah. It It can't really apply to most other people. And even when we're looking at the most elite of the elite, we're finding now that they didn't necessarily even want that. So there are like two women who um, had been written off for a very long time as either comic inventions or hetairai, and they're called Elpinise and Kosira. And they were, for a really long time, Kosira was thought to be a comic fantasy made up by Aristophanes Mm -hmm. until they found a load of ostraca with her name on. So an ostraca is a piece of pottery that in Athens, what you could do is you could vote to have somebody expelled from the city if you didn't like them, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which is, and the the way that you would vote is you would write their name on a piece of pottery and then put it in a pot basically. And there are billions of these and people found in the like 60s found ostraca with her name on it and then it turned out that she was pericles grandmother yeah i mean he he had some great women associated with him because also he had aspasia who was essentially his common-law wife who i think yeah. some people re- would call her hetairai as well but i don't think there's any evidence that she was she was he divorced his wife and they moved in together and she had his legitimate son or son who was later legitimized, Pericles the Younger, and was by all accounts pretty active and influential in his like political life. And yeah. a lot of people hated her. I think someone claimed that she was the reason for the Peloponnesian War, but she... <laughs> <laughs> people like to say that women are always the reason for a war. They do yeah. like to say that. I'm really allied to a lot of complicated issues around who was controlling the, the part yeah. of the G and C. My view of Aspasia, obviously, is how she appears in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is, she's a <laughs> badass. 
Uh, Connor was playing Assassin's Creed again earlier, I think, in honor of this episode. <laughs> and he went to the went to the shrine at Delphi, and there he met Herodotus. <laughs> and then he went in and saw the Pythia, and then the Pythia gave him some challenge. I don't remember. And then he was riding about on a horse, and I was like, mm, I've been there. It looks better in real life. <laughs> But I was like, why, why is Forrest just, just hanging around? <laughs> <laughs> Women are definitely a lot more active in their game than they are portrayed to be by... I'd say everywhere you go, there's a Herodotus, so... Yeah, yeah. you keep running into Pythagoras as well. He's just everywhere you turn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always, always popping up all over the place. Yeah. One, I want someone to ask us a question about Pythagoras because there's so many good stories about Pythagoras. <laughs> well, in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, you get to help them through an existential crisis. Does, does it involve beans in any way? It doesn't involve beans. Curse no. apparently very phobic of beans. Well, that's, that's silly. Beans are very nutritious. There's so much about Pythagoras, <laughs> like his weird cult that he ran and mm-hmm. so much stuff. But that's irrelevant here. So it we're is not irrelevant here because he's not a woman. Yeah, no, we're talking about women. He probably didn't like them very much. I'm not <laughs> sure what his opinions on women were. He liked maths the most and thought it was divine, <laughs> which is step one of where he went wrong in life. But... <laughs> <laughs> so the point is that there are these women who are obviously she like Caesaria appears on an ostracon mm-hmm. and. Pericles' girlfriend, everybody hated her. And there's also Elpinice, who was the daughter of Militardes, who was the guy who defeated the Persians at Marathon. And her brother was the guy called Cimon, who basically built the Athenian navy and then was the wife of Callias, who was Pericles' power. She was always arguing with Pericles in public. Um, and she appears on loads of Ostracon too. Mm-hmm. Or Ostraca, sorry. Um, but... They are the kind of people who, if we didn't have this specific information about who they were, because they are in public, yeah, there is this real tendency for male scholars and female scholars, to be fair, from the like 19th and 20th century to say, well, respectable women didn't go in public. So if we are seeing a woman, they must be a disrespectable woman. The only disrespectable woman there is is a sex worker, so they must be hetero mm-hmm. because they're hanging out with elite men. So there are women hanging out with elite men in public. We know their names must be hetero. When, when you actually find out the stuff about them, you're like, well, they were just elite women who yeah. hung out with their brother and the husband at dinner. Yeah. And... Another point that is made, this is um, Rebecca Futo Kennedy as well, is that there are a lot of women in Athens who aren't Athenian and therefore don't really feel the need to adhere to Athenian ideals of modesty and yeah. good wifely behaviour. Yeah. Because a lot of um, other places in ancient Greece had very different attitudes to women, right? Like Sparta, yeah. where they were a bit more autonomous and... My understanding well, is... Well, Sparta is a fucking world of its own. Like, just <laughs> Sparta lives in a box that just don't don't touch. <laughs> yeah, Sparta is, is a wild place. But, like, you know, they've got... Athenians have spread all over. They are hanging out with people in Egypt all the time. They mm. are going to Turkey all the time. They are up in what is now Macedonia all the time. They are colonizing Italy and they're everywhere. Yeah. All around the Aegean, hanging around in the Mediterranean. Sometimes they come home with wives. 
Yeah. I say sometimes, quite often. <laughs> and, you know, those wives are not necessarily, like, happy to be locked in the wife attic. Yeah. But, which is where I think that Sarah Pomeroy has been kind of eclipsed a bit. Like, she was, she had that book written in 1975. Yeah. And is, was, like, groundbreaking at the time. 1995. When she was, like. 1975, was reprinted in 95. Okay, sure. That makes sense. It's been, yeah, but 1975 was the original. Mm. And she, like, absolutely blew open this idea that you, you could talk about women as individuals and not just <laughs> as a homogenous mass who are all Clytemonastra. Yeah, yeah. Killing, speaking in verse and killing their <laughs> husband who is descended from a god. <laughs> Like the other two options for being a woman, but or a literal god who is, you know, using sex magic in order to keep their husband. Yeah, sure. So because sometimes they people like to bring in like Hera or Cersei, of course, and that kind of nonsense, and act like that's I mean, somehow relevant to real lived experience of women. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like Red Pill Man using um, Gone Girl as evidence that all women are trying to trap you and will lie to you and frame you for murder. Exactly. Or like finding any example of a woman being a horrible person and therefore saying that all women are horrible people. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is that we do have, like, we do have the Aristotle problem, as I've decided to term it. (laughs) Although the Hippanax problem might be fair. Of like, there is a fairly solid kind of philosopher class of Athenians mm-hmm. who really fucking hate women. Yeah. <laughs> and are happy to write about it. Like Hipponax, who is a notorious man who everybody despised. Mm-hmm. Like he had no friends and everybody thought he was the dirt worst. So he's like... He clearly was. <laughs> he was like straight up incel. Like, mm-hmm. like if he existed today, he would be there on the men going their own way forums. <laughs> Complaining that his mum won't, like, make his dinner anymore. Yeah. He's only 47 years old and doesn't see why he should have to move out. (laughs) Saying things like, there are two days on which a woman is pleasing when someone marries her and when he carries out her dead body. That's... Yep. That's That's a thing. That's a thing he says. Yeah, it is a thing he says. And you're like, well, cool, thanks, guys. (laughs) But he is like, it's like if you got all you got was like the Rouge V forums. Yeah. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants like, it. There's a whole world of of other stuff going on. And there's so many like historiographical problems with trying to get to these women's lives. And also what they felt about their lives. Yeah. Is a, is a real other issue that is absolutely inaccessible because... Apart from the occasional time when they would write things like Alcius is pretty to Melis, whereby we know that Melis thought that Alcius was hot, but we don't know who he was yeah. or she. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't know what Sainiera felt about her life. Maybe she thought it was grand. It seems like it was a horrible life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where she never experienced a day of freedom, but maybe she found some power in that. And maybe the women who never saw the outdoors found some power in never seeing the outdoors. Yeah. Or for each one who found power in that, there was probably one who wished they were dead. 
Yeah. In both situations. Completely. In the same way as, you know, my sister is a housewife with three very young children, which she adores and which I couldn't stand. Yeah. My sister has five children. Yeah, my mum did that. And wild. has Joseph Stairs just been a housewife who raises children? Yeah. And thinking about that makes me hyperventilate. Thinking about having one child makes me hyperventilate. Yeah, and that's like my sister and I, probably when we were growing up, for most of our lives, there would be no one in the world more similar to me than her. She is the closest possible thing, both DNA wise and like our tastes. <laughs> we always liked the same stuff. And now she has this life that is just absolutely not for me. And obviously the same has happened for all time because people yeah. are different. And I think people are different. I think the thing is with women at any point in history, for the most part, their ability, like their, their choices are so much more limited to ours. So it's easy to look back and be like, life must be so, must have been so horrible. And yeah. also to want there to have been a way to have agency over your own life in a way that most women didn't but people can build their own little lives wherever they are and I'm sure plenty of people managed it yeah it's bad that there there were less choices but (laughs) that doesn't mean that all wise were miserable and all hetero were blissfully happy there is also the issue which I think I've talked about on here before which I first came about stumbled upon through childhood studies of the the agency problem, which is that historians tend to only recognise rebellion as agency. Yeah. And people who live lives which are fulfilling within the what is perceived as the confines or within the structures of the culture in which they live are seen as somehow lacking in agency because they do not rebel. Yes. It's the Bianca so, problem. Yeah. Like that's Tammy of the Shrew. She gets exactly what she wants. She gets exactly the life she wants, but she is portrayed as the. Yeah. Because she does not rebel. She is somehow failed and therefore is seen as not having agency. Yeah. But But she really, really uh, does. Yeah. Mm. But I don't know. It's difficult. The question question is was it better to be a Tyre than a a wife? And my feeling was probably not. Yeah. Mostly because the stories that we have of real ones most seem to involve them being child sex slaves. Yep. And I feel I struggle to imagine a world in which being a child sex slave is better than anything. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to feel like my answer is no. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that people didn't find power in it, I guess. Yeah. Like neither Niera or Alke seem to... We don't have their voices, obviously. We only have men talking about them, mostly talking about how disgusting they are, mm. which is means that we are totally skewed. But I feel like if I was going to choose, it wouldn't be the life I would choose. No, But then, yeah, we can't speak for the fact either that despite the fact that they started out by being trafficked and abused, that they didn't find a way to be happy and yeah, powerful as they didn't, adults. Yeah, and to find, you know, some fulfilment. Yeah. And I hope that they did. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm not even just going to say in the past. I feel like for almost all of history and also now, being a woman kind of sucks. And it doesn't really matter what position you're in. There will always be a way in which you are being limited and controlled. Yeah. In particularly in Western history. Mm -hmm. And you can live completely opposite lives to another woman 
in the same culture and still both be being controlled by the male gaze. You can be a woman who is living in a modesty culture, who is, you know, one of those Christian covered, hair covered, you know, quiverful Mm -hmm. people and be being controlled by patriarchal male gaze of what a woman should be and you can be a porn star who has chosen to enter the sex industry and still be being controlled by the male gaze and you can be those two ends of the spectrum and you're still kind of limited by because being a woman kind of sucky yeah but so yeah but you can find power and fulfillment in both of those positions yep this is this once is, again. It's not a very sexy this answer. This is wound up being quite a depressing one. episode. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it would be. Yeah, it's it's much easier to make non-sex things sexy. It really is. So much of the time in the past, it ends up in grim. grim as fuck. <laughs> Turns out history not so hot on enthusiastic consent. No, really not. Yeah, the present not so hot on enthusiastic <laughs> consent. <laughs> Um, but maybe the future will be one can dream (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think that answered the question mostly I think so I mean with our traditional answer of it's a lot more complicated real complicated (laughs) yeah Um, it's real complicated yeah the storiography gets in the way as always yeah Um, what are we going to talk about next time then before I say that, I just want to say that you have written in here, what is good for the goose is not necessarily good for the other goose. <laughs> I did write that. And I, I want that to be our tagline. <laughs> I just really like it. It is the second best sentence I've heard today. <laughs> well, thank you. What was the first best? The best sentence was um, my friend Helen Rose, who will eventually listen to this, sent me a screenshot from Tumblr about cis-alpine Gaul and trans-alpine Gaul, <laughs> uh-huh. which were two places. That's how the Romans saw, like, that's how they so this differentiated between bits of Gaul. Comes from. So, so this side of the Alps mm-hmm. and that side of the Alps, sure. basically. Yeah. So this side, cis-alpine, and that side, because you have to go the trans, mm-hmm. go across the Alps, yeah. And then somebody said, cis people constant by the Romans, cut their hair and wear togas now. Trans people still partying, fuck Caesar. Face Roman, walk backwards into Gaul is trans culture. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, if I was a not cisgendered and it, like I would have face Roman, walk backwards into a Gaul on a t-shirt right now. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. I want to actually just buy that for all the trans people I know. <laughs> Yeah, if, so if you are a trans ancient historian or a non-cis ancient historian of any kind, then please get that on a t-shirt. That <laughs> <laughs> is excellent. Yeah, so that was the best sentence that I heard today, yeah. but yours was very close. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> All right, so on that bombshell, next week we have got, so we've got basically the same question from three people and... I think we're going to eventually have to address it. So this came from Dr. Scribble mm-hmm. um, on Twitter and also John Freeman, mm-hmm. friend of the show, and also um, at Mang Mang Mang, whose real name is Naomi. And they've all asked a variation of, did anyone expect the Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> it was inevitable. That was always going to come It was inevitable. So this will be our second Monty Python history question. (laughs) 
But yeah, so that is what we are doing next week. Yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah, thank you for being so patient. <laughs> yeah, thank you for hanging around. Yeah. Sorry. This, Hope we you can't didn't guarantee, forget that we existed. Like, this is this is the thing we do for outside of everything else. And Emma just has a lot of things that are in that everything else at the moment. Um, I do. I keep saying that July is the month that it's going to stop, but it's not now because paperwork got in the way. Oh, that's so annoying. August will be the month that, like, everything stops. Hopefully, because I got a new, I got a promotion. Congratulations. Exciting. So now I manage a bookshop, which is good, but also now I manage a bookshop and it's all our paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, but we will, I will be here and I will hopefully sound better next week as well. Yeah, hopefully. Um, Jeez. Yeah. Um, But until that time, you can find us on the Twitter at at SexyHistoryPod. Uh, yeah, or you can email us at sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. Or uh, we are on the Facebook at sexy without the E history pod. Because Facebook is a prude. They're real prudish. Uh, they have some real feelings about who is an okay woman. Um. <laughs> um, you can also find us on our Kofi page at bit.ly slash support sexy history. And we post uh, sources and things there. Yeah, so that's where I put all of the sources. Yeah, and if you want to buy us a coffee while you're there, we always appreciate then it. Then you are more than welcome to, yeah. Yeah, yeah it makes us happy. Makes um, us very, very happy. And you can follow us on our, our personal Twitters. I am mm, there not very often at the moment, as I am n- at Nuclear Teeth. And I am at J9 and if. And Oliver, who makes us sound good, although probably cannot do anything about my voice <laughs> or the horrible cough, is at Kiwa. And I think that's all the places that we are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, it was, it's, it's nice to be back and making everyone sad about history. <laughs> Yay. Yay. It's the complicatedness that makes it fun. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Bye, Janina. Bye.